I thought long and hard. Not that hard, but long. About what I had to say. That might interest people. Amuse them. Help them. Guide them. Help them avoid some pitfall. Or enjoy some aspect of life that I have. After 67 years in what I call the three P professions, police officer, private eye, producer, and physician, I've learned a little bit about life and about people. Every day when I go to work, there are people that I speak to from room to room, each hurting in magnitude great and small. But to them, it's always great. So for a hangnail that you can hardly see, even under magnification of eight power with great light, to lacerations with the tendon showing, it's all important to them. My job as a physician is to validate that, not to make them feel foolish for coming in for a cough or a cold, when secretly their best friend just died of pneumonia and they're worried. Maybe they have a tumor. Maybe someone had cancer. And that's really what's bringing them in. So instead of rambling, I thought I would write out a very specific outline. An outline so specific that Every transition would be smart, snappy, intelligent, well thought out. And then I thought, I'll never do it then. So it's 8.51 on what I call a Sunday night, which is really a Wednesday night because I'm off on Wednesdays. So it's like going back to work again on a Monday, which is really a Thursday. I'm sure you followed that. And going back to work. And I like to talk to my patients about whatever they'd like to talk about. And sometimes what I like to talk about. So they're my friends. I don't see them outside the office. I keep their information secretly hidden inside my heart, my mind, my records, my EHR computer, but I know their grandkids, their children, their husbands, their affairs, what STDs they carry and can't get rid of, which ones we have to treat on an ongoing basis, but never making the person feel less than who they are. And when they come in with something that is a little scary, 
is going to require some doing and some probing and some uncomfortable test ahead. I don't minimize it. I tell them straight up what's going to happen, but I also tell them that I'm going to be there right next to them. I'm going to help them through it. And after they go to the specialist and find out what they recommend, they're going to come back to me and we're going to sit down and we're a team. We're going to talk about what the specialist said, what the specialist wants to do, and maybe we get a second opinion. Maybe we wait. Maybe we do some research together. But very few things have to be done immediately unless it's a trauma situation. So this podcast number one will be very disjointed, unorganized, and may not help anyone. But we'll see. One story I can tell you I never really wanted to be a physician, but I did want to be the first P, a policeman. So all through my adolescent years, going through a divorce in Northridge, California, Granada Hills, California, going to Granada Hills High School, I just dreamt of being a police officer with the LAPD. During the 60s and 70s, they were the sharpest, the best law enforcement agency, in my eyes, in, in the country and in the world. So the Explorer Scouts were under the Boy Scouts, which we didn't like to admit, but the insurance policy was written by the Boy Scouts of America. And we had uniforms, and they would take us on buses down to Elysian Park, We'd go through the police academy and do the running and the PT test and do all the studying, the marching, the uniform. And when we graduated, we'd graduate three or four, 500 explorers. They had 17 divisions. But getting back to the episode that turned me to a physician, I made it to the police department. I was in East Los Angeles and I was driving to what we call Code 7, which for those in the business know that's time to eat. It's whatever it is, your breakfast or your second breakfast or your third breakfast, depending if you're working graveyard. This was six o'clock in the morning. I was traveling westbound on Whittier Boulevard, approaching Maple, in the number one lane, by myself, in a Lincoln car, or a one-man car. I had already communicated on the radio to Randy Mixon that I would meet him at Felix Pantry for, for breakfast. They had great breakfast burritos. I mean, the best wasn't the one you picked up and slopped all over yourself. It was on a hot plate that they told you five times, don't touch it, and you touched it anyway. You ate it with a knife and fork, and the che melted cheese and 
the eggs and the chorizo and the bacon and the juices. Boy, I tell you. Anyway, on my way there, there was a an occurrence that happened in my car, and if anyone from the outside was looking, they wouldn't. Maybe I was talking to myself. Maybe I was motioning. Maybe I was doing nothing. But a presence entered my car. Very specifically on that that avenue at that time, going to that place on that day. And the presence didn't speak audibly. The presence didn't have any odor or tactile essence to it where I could touch it or feel it or but I knew it was there in a very loving, warm, not a Ghostbuster type occurrence. And it spoke to me, not in audible language and not in sign language, and it didn't write me a message, and it didn't, we didn't have phones back then that could text, but it said, in my mind, you're going to be a physician. I repeated it three times. If you remember in the Bible, when Nicodemus came to Jesus, he told him three times something. John 3.16, if you want to see where that one went. I was so matter-of-factly changed at that instant that when the presence left, I went to Felix Pantry, parked my car, got out, went in. First thing I said to Randy Mixon was, I'm going to be a physician. He looked at me quizzically and said, are you going to have the dos manos or un mano? It was a big burrito and a small burrito. Like he hadn't heard me. But I know he, I knew he had. So I went home told my wife, woke her up, this is the graveyard, don't forget. We're eating breakfast at six o'clock. I told her, woke her up, you won't believe I'm gonna be a physician. She looked at me the same way Randy Mixon did. Okay, honey, did you get something to eat? Yeah, I'm fine, I'm gonna to go to take a shower, I'll go to bed, tired. How'd it go last night? Oh, same same old. Same old stuff. Professional fighter. I get paid to fight in the streets. So I called up my mom later that day. I told her the same thing. I'm going to be a physician. She says, but you're a policeman. I said, yes, but this is what happened, and... Nobody knew what it was. Nobody in my family at that time was in a spiritual position to have the knowledge of what had just occurred to me. I didn't know what it was. I really didn't. I knew it was a higher power. I knew it was some messenger from where I don't know. But my life had not been one of... Um, would I say, trying to pursue that very much. So, but I believed it wholeheartedly. There was no question about it. It was as authentic as 
I was making it out to be. Told my father, told the guys at work. And it was all met with skepticism and kind of laughter and you're a dumb cop. You can't even pass the sergeant's test. How are you going to get into medical school? So at that time, I had a degree in, in what is one of the most useless uh, degree, four-year degrees. It's called the degree, uh, a Bachelor's of Science, or, or BS, which is a good um, name for it, in police science or criminal justice. And there's really two things you can do with it. And... One you do every day in the morning, and the other one is be a policeman. So I couldn't use that very much for what I had taken as prerequisites for a physician or getting ready to go to medical school. So I met with Dr. Paulson, my pre-med advisor at Cal State Los Angeles, and it was very helpful. I looked at me and... I probably didn't see what the normal pre-med student looked like and the grades he had, because my grades were close to awful. So he told me what I had to have, and I started out on a path of going to work and getting off work and going to school, um, falling asleep in class and trying to do chemistry and organic chemistry and inorganic chemistry, physics, uh, geology, geometry, calculus, and they're very challenging, very challenging to me. And I just wasn't cutting it. I was getting C's and Sometimes not even that high. So I chased down my very sweet Indian, Pakistani chemistry professor in the elevator. He probably thought I was complaining about a grade or he didn't know what. He felt a little intimidated for... I was a cop, and I I did carry myself a little bit with an edge. And I remember him telling me, I said, I, I told him, I said, Dr. Khan, Khan, I, I, I can't, I'll never get into be a doctor with these grades. What can you do? And he says, in his Pakistani voice, Indian voice, he says, you're not failing Chemistry, my son, you can't do the math. And then began my quest for math muscle. Math muscle is what I termed it, and this is how I went about learning math. And this may be very boring to you if you're not academic, you hate math, and you can turn it off, or maybe you already have, but this is going to be helpful to somebody you know. Your kids, your grandkids, someone in your office, maybe you. There's no secret to math. Or maybe there is a secret. And I'll tell you what that is. 
Every math teacher has the routine of saying, do the odds or the even questions at the end of the book and get ready for the test on Tuesday. So we go home, we do the odds or the evens and we get ready for the test on Tuesday. And most of us don't do too well because we're just barely hanging on the to the periphery of the knowledge it takes to understand that math. So my secret was to get it in an enclosed room. This was a closet in our house, master bed, <laughs> and when I say master bedroom, it was a very small house, it was 900 square feet. So the bedroom closet was in proportion, but it did have a place where I could put a chalkboard. I always liked chalkboards, I don't like whiteboards. I, I love the sound of that chalk and but my wife didn't enjoy the chalk dust all over her clothes, so we we had cellophane all over the closet. And I had a little study desk in there. And I would do the odds, and I would do the evens, and then I would do the odds and the evens again. Then I would do the chapter behind and the chapter ahead. And the minute I ran into a problem, I'd call a tutor, I'd get in my car and drive to school go to the tutor lab, find out what my problem was, get over that hump, write it down, understand it, and then go back. And then not only did I do the odd and the even and the chapter before and the chapter after, I did them 10 times each, even though I had just done it 10 minutes ago. I knew the answer. That wasn't good enough. I wanted to be an Arnold Schwarzenegger. I wanted to stay in the gym longer. I wanted to do more repetitions and more repetitions. And I wanted more muscle in math than I would ever need. Then, when the Tuesday test came, it was like I had a supercharger. I just breezed through it. Most of the Questions came from the homework. I had already done them 10, 15 times each. I had already been a chapter ahead. The stuff that we were being tested on, I was ahead of the class. I wasn't dragging behind the class. I wasn't in the middle of the class. I was past the top of the class. And it wasn't because I was smart. It was because I was determined to achieve my goal. Well, I don't know how long podcasts are supposed to last, so I think we're going to wait and hear about the rest of it later. I hope this first cast introduced you to me. I have you in my mind's eye as I'm speaking. I know the type of people that gravitate to these stories because I've told them so many times to patients and to people in the past over 30 years of practice. The next podcast will tell you how to survive medical school, tell you how to get into medical school,
it'll tell you how someone in the police department, after seven years, transitioned to medicine, and then someone in medicine transitioned into an executive producer of motion pictures. And from there, somewhere in between, the private investigator came out. That was really a survival, because I had left the police department to accelerate my pre-med, and I had to find a job that I knew what to do, or I knew how to do a job. And there's a secret when it comes to being a private eye. It's not Magnum PI or Hawaii Five O or Colombo or that's not really what a PI is. So until next time, I hope you have some idea who I am and I look forward to speaking to you again uh, very soon. Good night and God bless. Hi, this is Dave, Dr. Dave, coming live to you, number three in the podcast series of, series of, I don't know how many. I have been procrastinating for about a week and a half, two weeks, because I know the topic I want to talk about, and probably one of the most important topics I'm going to talk about. So I want to get it right. And I want to present it in a format that I can break it down to everybody in their different levels of um, life's journey. So if you're married, not married, thinking about getting married, too young to be married, too old to be married, um, or you got it fixed. I'm going to start with, as I promised, raising children. And the first thing I'm going to say about raising children is the marriage. A strong marriage breeds great kids, raises great kids. And if the marriage isn't right, if the structure is wrong, then you're going to have problems. Look at me as 60 years ahead of you, 50, 40, 30 on a journey to a faraway planet. I'm going to hopefully advise you how to avoid the asteroid field, how to sling around one of the planets to get extra speed, and hope your journey is smoother and has less bumps in mind. If you take this advice, I think you'd be wise. If you don't take it, I think you'll look back on it and you'll appreciate it more and more the less you do it. So raising children, the first thing children want to know is, is there a uniformity in the discipline plan? Where's my walls? Every infant is going to crawl till he hits a wall and he's going to crawl to another wall and another wall. If he finds an opening, he's going to go through the opening. So those who have had toddlers or watched toddlers or 
had siblings, you know they're just going to keep going until they find a hole. Now, if the four walls are established and they're very close, they're very conservative, strict walls, that's okay. As long as parent one, parent two are on the same page. If one is the meanie and one's the easy one, then the kids are going to gravitate to the easy one. Kids will split the parents at any chance. They're looking for a crack in your armor. The owner's manual, because if you have a car, a washing machine, you have an owner's manual. The owner's manual says two will become one flesh. You become one. If there's a gap between the one, they'll find it. So if the walls are liberal or farther out, but they're consistent Monday through Friday and Saturday and Sunday with both parents present, absent, one there, the other one there, your kids will find and relax and know where they can't cross. Now, how many times will they cross the boundary? Well, five, six, ten times. And they'll consistently check and see if they can push that boundary. Maybe it's the east wall, the west wall. But they'll try it. And if it's not uniform, it's not consistent, they'll push the wall out a little bit. Now you've got a new set of boundaries. Now the other kids will try it. Or if you have one, he'll try it. And they'll try it with the other parent. And he'll go back and forth until he keeps moving those walls. He's not trying to move the walls. He's trying to find out where they are. What's the boundaries? I don't know. I'm two. I'm four. I'm five. I'm seven. I don't know. You're the parent. You tell me. You had me. You didn't order me. You had me. You made a decision. Or whoops. But I'm here. And now you can't advocate your responsibility as a parent by just one being the meanie, one being the softy, both being softy, both being meanies, but the walls are different. So they don't know who's in charge and who's on first. Keep your walls consistent. Now, if you disagree as mom and dad, then take it in another room. Talk about it. Maybe you need to move that wall in or out together. Move it out, move it in. Maybe parent one says parent two, I think you're too tough on the kids, you know? They're just kids. Let them be kids. Okay. But, you know, when they're playing with a lawnmower and they get their fingers chopped off, they're just kids. So, for their safety and for your sanity and for their sanity and for the foundation, you're laying down a foundation for your children. Every day, they're they're not listening to what you say. They're watching what you do. They're watching how you interact. Who's on first? Who's on second? The manual says the man is the head of the house. Oh my goodness, he said it. Yes. Now most men, it's not like they're fighting to be boss of the house. It's a division of labor. It has nothing to do with hierarchy, even though I said use that word. It has to do with division of labor. You ever watch combat? Vic Morrow? LT had the lead. LT was lieutenant. He had the lead. He's leading the troops. If LT is a good lieutenant, he's a good leader, he'd die for you. He has your back. Don't you want to follow him? 
he's a bad leader, you don't want to follow him. So if the husband's a lousy leader, no one's going to follow him. No one's going to want to follow him. But here's the deal in the manual. If you want to talk about value, who's value? The husband, the wife, who's more valuable? Two become one. You're one brain. Brain has different functions. One has sight, one has memory, one has emotions. They have different functions. Same person. Two shall become one. The manual says that the man will be the secret service. The woman will be the one he's protecting. And he will give his life for her. Not the other way around. She's not to take a bullet for him. He's to take a bullet for her. Okay, so you want to go back to your value system. Who's more valuable? The Secret Service or them who they're protecting? It's a division of labor. Now, most women from the Eden Garden had two curses, childbirth and enmity with man. Enmity with man is, I want to take over. I want to be boss. I want to run the show. I want to run the ship. That's inborn. So when women hear this, they have something inert, inherent, DNA rising up and say, I don't like that. Don't tell me that. That's not true. Because that's where it came from. Of course you don't like it. But give it a chance. If the husband leads like LT and gives his life for that troop, for those guys in Vic Morrow's combat, I'm going back to the 60s. You're going to want to follow him. If he's a lousy leader, then he's got one person he's responsible to, the writer of the owner's manual. And when he goes face to face with him, he's got to explain why it's all messed up. It's his fault. So a lot of guys now, they want to abdicate their responsibility. They'll be glad to have the woman drive, take care of the house, take care of all the business, sit back, watch football. Okay, honey, what do you want me to do? Whatever you say, just keep her happy. But she won't be happy for long because something's missing. Your male leadership in the house is missing. Your children see it. Your girls are going to, as you know, first have a relationship and look at their dad as someone they'd want to marry, as someone they esteem to marry, someone of that quality. And boys the same with their mom. You're setting examples. When you see a beautiful girl who's got it together with some real, watch my language, undesirable, but has nothing going, look at her father relationship. First thing, if she had a strong father relationship, if the father esteemed that daughter, spent time with that daughter, was a leader in the home, she could depend on him, the walls didn't move. He's not infallible. He makes mistakes. He's going to trip and fall all the time. But he apologizes for that. He's real. He's honest. He's genuine. You can count on him. He's consistent. You'll have a mate that she picks that is of that caliber. If you have a father that is not there, doesn't care about the daughter, doesn't spend time, doesn't esteem her, not the leader, just kind of slinking back and watching football and drinking beer and doing his thing. She's going to pick some deadbeat. 
That's the number one rule. When I see young women in my office, that's what I tell them. How, how's your relationship with your father? How's your relationship with your mother? And the father relationship is very, very important. So I won't get into all the Freudian and young analysis of how females and males decide what they're going to do later in life. But the foundation of the marriage is that important. So you may have turned this off by now and think, well, this is this is old school. Yeah, it's very old school. It's like a couple thousand years old school. But I can tell you from 46 years of marriage to the same woman, we still struggle with that. It's still an issue. But when you have a woman who's also reading the manual, she will understand in her heart that I'm the guy that two o'clock in the morning when there's noise downstairs, gets the gun and goes down and looks. I'm the one that shakes the house. I'm the guy that goes outside if there's a problem. I'm the one that takes a bullet for her. I'm the one that protects her. Oh, she can't protect herself? Yeah, she can protect herself in some instances. Other cases, no, she can't. I'm there and I'll give my life for her anytime. And she knows that. And I lead with consistency. And when I mess up and I screw up, I apologize. I apologize for that. So if you want strong kids, if you want kids that listen to you nothing worse than being in a public space and you see a family of two or three or whatever and the kids are running amok they're under the table their food's flying they're laughing the parents are telling them the same thing over and over going in one ear out the other they don't listen they're just a mess who wants to be around those kids well number one the parents don't you don't definitely you're out there you're trying to enjoy your dinner and he's got these uh, rugrats running, running crazy. Are the kids happy? Yeah, they're having a ball. No, they're not. They're not happy. They're not content. They don't know where the walls are. They don't know where the limits are because nobody laid down the limits and follow through. Let's talk about follow through. My kids, when they were young, would get us in a public space and then try to split us or then try to push that wall. And they look at you I don't care if they're two, three, four years old. They look at you with that look that you know, that they know, that you know, that they think they got you over a barrel. Like, you're not going to spank me in front of these people at uh, the grocery store. Or you're not going to take me outside this restaurant and uh, I can do what I want and I'm not going to obey you. And they're testing you. They're going to see if that wall stays there in the restaurant, in the grocery store, at home, only at home, when do I have to listen to you? I was in San Francisco. I had a two or three year old that was just testing the waters, just trying to test the waters. He was taking his uh, Cheerios and just flinging them across the table and on the floor. And the, you know, the waitress, oh, he's getting cute. It's like, no, that's not cute, that's, you know? So I told him, you do it again, and I'm going to give you a spanking. Oh, spanking. Called Child Protective Services. Quick. Yes, a spanking. It doesn't mean you take them out and bruise them, break capillaries, 
and bones, it's a spanking. And I'm telling you, it's more of an emotional letdown than anything physical. So he looked at me with that eye like, you went there. And he did it again. I gently excused myself, took him gently out of the high chair, took him outside, lovingly like a father, took him around the alley, pulled his pants down, and I spanked him. Oh my gosh, he let out a whale like I killed him. Just a little slap on the butt. The point was, I'm going to follow through in the restaurant, at home, wherever you are. So that was a trial. Or my wife, when they were in the grocery mart, she didn't want to make a spectacle with screaming kids. So she would just tell them, get real close to them, come over here. When you get home, this is what I'm going to do. You're going to get a spanking. They look at her like, hmm, we'll see. Did she carry it out? You bet. They got home, they got a spanking. We use a little paint stick. It's like a little wafer board on their butt. King, little spank. They cry. And that emotional outlet, it's almost like they feel better. And I know they feel better. And then we hug. And then we pray. And then we get back on, back in the game. Back in the game. We're all good. Love you. Kids got to know the boundaries. Is this tough, parents? Oh, 24-7, every day. Now, when they're 10, 12, I don't spank those kids. 14, no. Girls, different. One girl I had, all I had to do was say her middle name. That's all it took. She knew what was coming next. That did it. That's all I had to do. I don't think I spanked that child more than once. Now, mom, a little different. She pushed mom to the limit. So, for me, that child. Now, I had a middle child. He was a little tougher. He just really a little tougher. Time out? Yeah. If it works, great. Try it. If it doesn't work, you've got to do something they don't like. If you take away something, their video games or whatever they they have that means something to them for a specific period of time and you stick to it, not day two. All right, you can have it back. You're being good. Oh, thanks, mom. You're the best. Oh, dad, you're the great. You're so cool. Like I said before, you're not their parent. You're not their, their friend. You're the parent. You're not supposed to be cool. You're not supposed to come off as cool. You're not supposed to talk to them like you're a kid talk to them like a parent grow up take the responsibility and men hello most men don't want that job apply here no thanks i like it i like when someone else makes all the calls because you know what i don't have any responsibility goes wrong hmm i didn't make the call I might chip in, but again, it's a division of labor. It's not who's more important. And if you want to go there, who dies? The secret service for the president or the vice president or some dignitary, a bodyguard. So yes, there is a secret service 
in marriage. And there is an umbrella holder, the metaphor. That umbrella holder is the male, the father, the husband. Don't like it? Sorry. That's what the manual says. You want the car to run right? Put oil in it. Put gas in it. Put the right kind of gas in it, the right kind of oil. And don't put the oil where the windshield wiper fluid goes, vice versa. You can try it. Things aren't going to run well. Why aren't things running well? Hmm. Maybe because right now you're in a utopia. You're in the woman. I love being in control. My husband does what I tell him to. He's just a softy. I love him. He's just a softy. But when push comes to shove, there's going to be a time when she actually doesn't like you because you didn't stand up. You didn't take the lead. You weren't LT in combat. Take the lead, men. It's your responsibility. It's in the owner's manual. And this is probably why I haven't done this podcast for two weeks. Because it's a tough subject. And people don't like to hear it. But I'm telling you from 46 years. And you say, well, that's you. Well, no. Actually, I've told you before. I've seen 100,000 different people. Their lives. Their marriage. Their kids. I see kids in the office. They're so disrespectful. They're cussing their parents out in front of me. I'm the one that tells them, you do that again, I'm kicking you out of my office. (gasps) The mother's more shocked than the child. And the child's shocked too. Or I would tell them, if you were my son, I would take your pants down and spank you. (gasps) Who ever heard of that? This kid is out of control. I had a doctor friend of mine go out to lunch with me. Brilliant guy. Triple board certified. Brilliant. At his work, highly respected, academic genius. At home, he says, I don't want to go home. My kids are a mess. They don't listen to me. Anything I say. My wife doesn't back me up. I I hate to go home. I stay late at work. He had a miserable marriage. I told him this seven years ago. Came in one ear out the other. He still doesn't want to go home. Kids are growing. Good luck. He had a miserable time with his children. Wonder why. I love going home. I couldn't wait to see my kids. I love being around my kids. I love taking them places. I would have so many people come to to us in a restaurant and say, you have the most well-behaved children I've ever seen. And then we take their back shirts off and show them all the bruises and scars and from the whippings. No, they didn't have any scars. They didn't have any bruises. They just had parents that manned up and womaned up to the calling. So if your kids are out of control and you don't want to go home, or your kids are just a mess and you can't take them any place, it's not their fault. They're looking for the walls. They're looking for the limits. So, how many people are still here? I see a show of hands. I've got one, two. All right, we'll continue. That's fine. Um, so, unity of purpose with raising kids and spend time with them. Quality time, you know. I don't know what they call it. Yeah, quality time. Quality time to me 
is where you have something, you're doing something together. You're doing a project together, you're going on a hike together, you're doing something specific with that one child. When you have two or more together, chemistry is different. You need to take each child individually, particularly your girls, very important. Build that self-esteem, build that self-worth. Tell them how valuable they are. And you won't have them coming home to you with people picking on them. They'll be able to stand and stand their ground. They'll have that self-esteem. That doesn't come individually. And some people are stronger than others just genetically. But you have to build that self-esteem in the girls. Girls are very important for a father. And boys, that's a natural. Moms and boys need that very close relationship where she can talk, they can talk to her about anything and they have that great relationship. My wife has a great relationship with my boys. I have a great relationship with my girls and vice versa. So now into their 20, 30, 40s, we get together, it's a blast. No one has hard feelings about, oh, you were too tough or you were too mean. And sometimes I think I was. Sometimes I look at videos. And, but my boys thank me. They literally thank me for how I raised them. And I'm not trying to contend for Father of the Year, although I'll put my name in. Um, I'm just telling you the formula works because it's from the manual. There's no secret to this. But people who don't read the manual, don't consult it, or don't think it's valid for your model maker year, car, or vehicle, or marriage, or you, then you're going to make your own determination on how it should run. How should it run? Who made the rules? The manufacturer made the rules. He's the one that made you. He's the one that made marriage. It's his manual. I don't apologize for these. I know they're hard because that enmity is inborn. It's one of the, the two curses from the garden. And you say, oh, that was just, uh, that's a metaphor. That was just, uh, that's just a story. That's just a tall tale. Um, well, whatever it was, the results are true. And you know that, women. You know what that raises when you say man is head of the family. He's head of the wife. But he's to give his life for you. He's to protect you. He's responsible if you run that thing off the track. So if the marriage goes off the track, I'll tell you whose fault it is. Husbands, number one. I don't care what the wife did, what, she, what he led her to do, unless she's just really out there. It's his fault. He should build such confidence in his wife and love her as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? Climbed upon a cross and died. That's sacrificial love. That's a servant's love. I love getting my wife breakfast in bed. I don't have to do it. But on my days off and my half days and the weekends, it's my turn, and I gladly do it. I love doing it. The look on her face, simple. Fry a couple of eggs, 
throw them on the plate, get some coffee, a yogurt, bring it up on a tray. Voila, I'm a genius. And I love doing it for her. I love waiting on her. You know, I went to this one、um, thing called Promise Keepers way back when. It's about how men could be better husbands, better fathers. What's wrong with that? A lot of people had a problem with it, but I didn't. I took my boys. I took my dad when he was alive. I took my nephews, and some of it stuck, and some of it didn't stick. But one thing they told us to do at the Coliseum was sixty, seventy thousand men praying for their family, praying for their wife, praying for themselves to get their act together, and take up. The calling of what God wants you to do as a man in your marriage, as a father in your household. They told us, when you go home, instead of bringing your wife some flowers, bend down and kiss her feet. When I got out of that two-day beautiful seminar in the Coliseum in Los Angeles, I couldn't wait to come home and kiss my wife's feet. I love her. I love her to death. So, this has been probably most hardest hitting podcast. Got under the covers and got personal with you. I hope you had a heart to receive it. I hope you listen to it again, and I'll see you next time. God bless.